Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Kat Arnie. Kat. Hello, and this week I've had a horrible cold, so I sound like this. We'll find out how 4,000-year-old mummies had clogged arteries. Also, scientists discover what controls when a cockerel wakes you up in the morning. And a totally new type of antibiotic that might help to tackle drug resistance. Plus cholera. It's the 200th anniversary of the birth of John Snow, the doctor who had the handle removed from a water pump to stop a cholera outbreak in London's Soho. We take a look at his legacy and we'll find out how we're continuing to fight cholera using modern science. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist, then do email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientist or you can find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Now, first, joining us for a look at what's been making science headlines this week is Cambridge University neuroscientist David Weston and Laurie Winkless from the National Physical Laboratory. So, Kat, you're up first. Tell us about mummies and heart disease. Well, now many people think that life was better in the good old days and we didn't get all these horrible modern illnesses, but what about the good old, old days back in ancient Egypt? Now, according to research published this week by an international team of scientists and mummy experts in the journal The Lancet, it turns out that one of the diseases that's usually thought of as an affliction of modern life, that's atherosclerosis, or clogging and hardening of the arteries, was actually around in people who lived thousands of years ago. Now, this is work from Randall Thomas and he and his team did CT scans of 137 mummies from four different parts of the world that's Egypt, Peru, Southwest America and the Aleutian Islands and this spans more than 4,000 years of history from around 3,800 BC to the turn of the 20th century. Now what they did is in these CT scans they carefully checked out the mummies major arteries and blood vessel beds looking for the characteristic signs of atherosclerosis. And they did find signs of the disease in about a third of all the mummies they looked at. And in fact, older mummies who died on average in their 40s, they were much more likely to have this than those who died in their 30s. I think this is very interesting because obviously everyone said, oh, arterial disease is a sign of affluence. But here we are with mummies 4,000 years ago and some of them were not eating a rich diet because they were from hunter-gatherer type populations or they were from vegetarian type populations. So it shows that it's more probably an ageing thing rather than just a disease of affluence, doesn't it? Exactly. I mean, the modern risk factors that we finger for this disease are things like smoking, eating a bad diet, not exercising enough. But the guys from the Aleutian Islands, they, they were a pre-farming hunter-gatherer society. They had a very simple diet. Now, actually, over 100 years ago, um, a couple of researchers did autopsies on Egyptian mummies and found signs of atherosclerosis. But people since then, they've said, well, Egyptian mummies, you know, the kind that you see in the British Museum, these guys, are they, they were wealthy, they made maybe had luxurious lives and, and more unhealthy diets and lifestyles. But the fact that they're finding the signs of atherosclerosis in mummies from all over the world and, and mummies that weren't buried in such a spectacular way, so just regular people, that does suggest that maybe it is actually fundamentally part of human ageing. I also think it's lovely that we've got this sort of time capsule of this ancient tissue, some of it 4,000 years old, let's not forget, and you can still look at the diseases that these individuals had even then. Absolutely. And mummies have told us an awful lot about, about our history and, and our biology. And it's quite interesting what they think might be the cause of the atherosclerosis if it's not part of our, our just fundamental um, human 
body. Interestingly, those kind of societies, they did a lot of cooking indoors. There was a lot of smoke from indoor fires and indoor oil lamps. So some people suggest, well, maybe that's mimicking cigarette smoke. And, and some researchers are saying, well they haven't 100% proved that the things that they found on their CT scans would be atherosclerosis that would cause them heart attacks. But, you know, we do know from big studies that healthy diet, keeping active, avoiding smoking do cut your risk of heart disease. What this tells us is that there's probably something more fundamentally human going on to this and it's not exclusively related to our unhealthy modern lifestyle. And maybe the good old days weren't that great after all. David? Yeah, I was just wondering, did the authors of the paper say anything about how difficult it was to perform these scans? It strikes me that these mummies are probably quite fragile. Is it, is it quite a difficult technique to do with these preserved bodies? I should think you do have to be pretty careful with them. Um, but it is fascinating, the more that we put mummies in the CT scanner, the British Museum had an amazing virtual autopsy a little while ago, and, and you can really see incredible detail. So I, I guess as long as you're careful with it, you can probably manage not to break them. Mm. Yeah, so I suppose that would be order of the day, wouldn't it, being careful? Now, David, this one's for you. Ah, oh, yes, the crow of the rooster, everybody's favourite noise for the beginning of the day. So, yes, so I've um, decided to look at a paper here that was published, uh, going to be published, in fact, um, looking at the crowing of the rooster. So most people are familiar with the idea that the rooster crows in the morning, but some people might not be aware that roosters actually crow uh, at various points uh, along the day. Some people may not be entirely happy about it either. Yes, true. It could be uh, slightly disturbing, but you know, I sort of think of the idyllic pastoral scene with the glorious crow of the rooster in the morning, so that's, that's my spin on it. But um, a main question that sort of behavioural neuroscientists have been thinking about is when do roosters decide they want to crow? And this has been a main focus for two researchers in Japan uh, called Tsuyoshi Shimura and Takashi Yoshimura uh, from Nagoya University. And they've just published a paper which shows that internal body clocks may play a role in determining when these roosters actually crow. How do they do that? I mean, tell us about the method. I mean, what do they actually do to work out what the, the chickens were doing when they were in the experiment? So what they did was they took a group of roosters that they kept under a sort of normal day cycle, so 12 hours under dim light and 12 hours as sort of daytime light. And they found that the roosters actually crowed most two hours before the light was switched on. So this indicated there's a pre-dawn crowing situation. And they kept, they kept a control group, which was completely in the dark, for the 24-hour cycle. And they also found that these roosters also crowed most at around the same time. Ah, so it wasn't just reacting to light. Exactly. So this is a main, one of the main points of the paper, is that this is completely without the entrainment uh, of light, which is normally what people think that roosters are crowing in response to. Now, one interesting thing, if you do this with humans, not make them crow, obviously, but if you put them into <laughs> a system where they're in the absence of light, then their body clock doesn't quite keep time perfectly does it? it it's slightly less or the, the body clock keeps time slightly under a 24-hour day so did the roosters also do that did they find that their 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 start of the day got slightly earlier day on day remarkably they did yes so with these original experiments where we it's called free running so the idea that your body clock is slightly less than 24 hours so over the course of the experiment which was run over a month these roosters actually began to crow slightly earlier every day and this is kind of a hallmark of the idea of this internal body clock being responsible for the behavior so what do they say the implications of this are um, apart from the fact that we now know that that these animals are just obeying their physiological signal that they want to grow what else what else <laughs> 
uh, can we learn from this, or well, what can we do about it? Well, I guess it tells us not to be annoyed at the rooster for crowing, because Just it's part the of their biology. <laughs> but I guess it tells us that more behaviours than we might suspect are actually controlled by our internal body mechanisms, and that this timing is such an important process for not only human biology, but also for other, other organisms. I mean, if you look at the number of papers that have come out recently looking at the role of the body clock, we now learn this just this week, actually, that if you deprive yourself of sleep five hours a night instead of uh, an average of eight, then people gain a kilo in just five days, which is what one study showed in PNAS this week. It seems that just messing with your body clock has enormous physiological consequences. Mm, I think sort of the day-to-day experiment that people may be able to perform themselves is the effects of jet lag. I mean, anyone can attest to the sort of cognitive decline associated with jet lag. And there is remarkable evidence that things like weight gain and obesity and even diabetes are controlled by sort of a circadian rhythm, it's called. I know it sounds paradoxical to say to people, actually spending an extra hour in bed may lead to weight loss. But, (laughs) you know, it's, it's potentially true, isn't it? Thank you very much, David. This week, the British government's chief medical officer, Dame Sally Davis, called for antibiotic resistance to be treated as a major national risk on par with climate change or terrorism. And to find out about a new type of antibiotics that could reduce bacterial resistance, we're joined by Michael MacArthur, the chief scientific officer of the research company Procarta Biosystems. Hi, Michael. Hi. Thanks for joining us. So... Tell me for a start, what's different about the antibiotics that you're developing from the the traditional antibiotics that we're rapidly running out of? Well, traditional antibiotics go go after only a limited set of targets. And you're right that resistance mechanisms are now embedded in the clinic. So it's very difficult to circumvent them now. So our approach is is to target entirely new therapeutic targets, which is gene expression. Bacteria need to turn on certain genes in order to survive inside the host, in order to become pathogenic. And by using simple oligonucleotide switches that are rationally and easily designed, we've been able to show in vitro and in vivo that we can stop these genes from being expressed and therefore defeat infection. And that's important also because it's a genuine platform technology. We can anticipate making a whole series of antibiotics against a series of different pathogens rather than relying on on a new discovery to find a new molecule and pairing it with a a particular infection. So the idea is that the antibiotics are actually these little little stretches of of nucleotides, these little stretches of kind of complementary DNA that you would give those to people? That's right. We call them transcription factor decoys, and that's what they do. They, They mimic the binding site of the transcription factors that would normally control gene expression. These transcription factors now bind to the decoys, and we therefore, in that way, controlled gene expression. And is this for just particular genes in the bacteria, like the ones that make them grow, or, or if you just target any genes, you'll just knacker the bacteria? Well, there's, we choose our targets carefully so we can choose them um, so that they're very narrow spectrum, which is to say we can defeat specific infections like C. difficile without uh, causing damage to the commensal bacteria, the good bacteria in your gut, or we can design the sequences so they're very broad um, and defeat a wide class of bacteria like the gram-negatives. So it's, um, it really puts us in charge of, of determining the specificity of the antibiotics, and I think that's going to be important as we learn more about how to use antibiotics properly in the future. Now, I know that um, there, there's other types of diseases where people are looking at trying to use these very short, short stretches of, of nucleotides, but it seems to me at the moment that there's a problem with actually delivering them really effectively to to get them to the right places in people's bodies in the right doses. Um, Is this a challenge that you're coming up against? It's a challenge we've had to overcome. So we have a proprietary delivery system, 
which allows us to deliver these decoys right in the heart of bacteria. So we found a lipid which can encapsulate the oligonucleotide and form a nanoparticle, a small... A fatty little bubble, basically. A fatty little <laughs> bubble, yes, which has a rather interesting and unique property that it can cross over bacterial membranes to get inside the cell. Because these things are really impenetrable bacteria. I mean, that's partly why they're so successful. You just can't get anything in them. Well, certainly um, several drugs um, have failed because they can't get into bacteria. But if you do if you do make them membrane-like, then yes, you can you can trick the bacteria and they get taken up readily. And then you can choose bacterial infections which occur either on, on the skin or in the blood. So it's not like we have to target them to, to liver cells. We can actually choose um, our infections uh, which are, are more readily accessible for us. So where is this research at the moment? Because uh, is, it, is it just on bacteria growing in Petri dishes in the lab or are you are you hoping to take it into humans? Well, we've announced today that we've, um, we're taking our lead programme, which is an MRSA programme, and as the first uh, product that we foresee, we're looking at topical applications, looking at nasal decolonisation. Staph aureus grows naturally in your nose, and if you can get rid of that before major surgery, then that's a great advantage and helps, helps recovery. So it's some kind of pre-surgical nose spray, basically. That's right, and that's the first step for the company, and then we see further products around Staph aureus as an intravenous drug, but we're following up also with C. difficile products and products to defeat gram-negative infections, which are the really big challenge out there. Can I just ask, because one of Dame Sally Davis's points is that we're seeing enormous amounts of antibiotic resistance. Yeah. So what is to stop the bugs becoming resistant to the challenge or the gauntlet you're throwing down with your new antimicrobial strategy? Well, partly it's because our system's so adaptable. So if we do see resistance uh, arising, we have other targets we can go for. And simply by making rational change to the oligonucleotide sequence, we can, um, we can get round any resistance mechanism that comes up at the level of transcription. The delivery system seems to be very robust, so we've tested that against a whole panel of clinical isolates, and we haven't found one yet that it can't get into. So there's, I think there is hope there. There's nothing that's going to be resistance-proof, and I think in the future we're going to be looking at better stewardship of antibiotics, more considerate use, marrying it with better diagnostics, um, and that's going to be part of the solution as well. Um, I was just wondering, you mentioned that different bacteria within the gut, so you've got these healthy and these sort of unhealthy bacteria, and you can target specifically unhealthy bacteria. So is, is there any idea whether the human immune system is going to be susceptible to these oligonucleotides, or is it definitely very specific just to bacteria? We can use bioinformatics to make sure that the sequences should only affect bacterial gene expression patterns. But well, we do see a great role for our technology as a genuine research tool to try and unpick that relationship between gut microbes and, and the human um, immunogenic reaction. Um, I think that's going to be a very interesting area of our research as well. Thank you very much, uh, Michael. Michael MacArthur from Procartu came in to tell us about that this week. Now, Laurie, you've got a story that will also look at one of the other things that's a national risk that was mentioned by Sally Davis. That was climate change. Tell us about your story. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I found this paper in Physical Review Letters this week, and it's actually all about water vapour, um, which is the third most common gas in the Earth's atmosphere. And we know that it plays a really key role in the whole radiative exchange of the Earth's atmosphere because it absorbs radiation and sunlight. So we know it's really important. But there's been a bit of a, a problem with uh, balancing the equations, shall we say, since the 1960s. The models of how much water a vapour should be able to absorb in terms of radiation has been much lower than the observed amount of, 
of uh, absorbance of radiation. So there's been a group at the Russian Academy of Sciences who've basically developed a detector which can look for this kind of mystery particle, these so-called water dimers, which are pairs of water molecules that, if they were found to exist, would explain this difference between the model and the observations. Oh, I see. So because there are these additional types of water, two water molecules stuck together in the atmosphere and they absorb radiation differently than just water on its own. They can account for, for this missing link. Yes, absolutely. The, water is actually much better at absorbing radiation than it should be, as it were. <laughs> so if these dimers existed, if these pairs of water molecules were also present in the Earth's atmosphere, that would make the equations balance, as it were. But the big fly in the ointment here has been that we just couldn't see them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, historically, this question came into, into uh, our consciousness in the 1960s, really. But since then, there have been lots of debate as to whether they were even real. And they have been observed, but at very, very low temperatures. So temperatures approaching absolute zero, which is not really representative of our Earth's atmosphere. So this group, uh, led by Mikhail Tetrakov uh, at the Russian Academy of Sciences, have developed a detector which can detect and has detected pairs of, of these water molecules, these dimers, at temperatures and pressures that are much more representative of the Earth's atmosphere. So how does their system work and why do they not need it to be absolute zero to see this stuff where previously we did? Well, previously what they've been looking for is the vibrational spectrum of water. And when you're looking at a single water molecule, so a monomer versus a dimer, so a pair of water molecules, in the vibrational spectrum, they overlap. So it's very difficult to tell the difference between a single and a pair. What's the vibrational they... spectrum? So basically it's because water molecules are polar, so they have a shape, they, vib they vibrate purely because they're at temperatures above absolute zero. As you increase the temperature, you're actually increasing the vibration, as it were. Um, so when you're looking at the vibrational spectrum, so kind of their uh, relate to their temperature, really, it's very, very difficult to distinguish them. So what this team have done is they've looked at a different spectrum. They've looked at the rotational spectrum of water molecules. And because uh, you have pairs of water molecules, they have have a different mass than a single water molecule. So it's much easier to separate the signals and see the difference between the single and the dimer. And does this work? If you look in the atmosphere, can they marry up what we saw previously as the missing amount with what their new re recording technique tells them is there? Yeah, these guys, this, uh, the system that the spectrometer that they've built uh, has actually detected something along the right line. So it's looking really, really positive. Now, their numbers are slightly out. It's uh, four, the peak is four times broader than expected, but it is in the right range. They think there's some unanswered questions about the actual shape of the dimer. So maybe it's not quite so symmetric. So many more questions still to answer, but it's looking really positive. This is the first time that these dimers have been measured in atmospheric conditions. Terrific, Laurie. Thank you very much. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and uh, with Kat Arnie. And if you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments, then please email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find us on Facebook. And if you do follow us on Facebook, you can like our posts. But be warned, a new study suggests that liking things on Facebook may mean that you're giving away more information about yourself than you think. Now, this is uh, some stuff that came out this week from David Stilwell and his team at the Psychometric Centre at the University of Cambridge. And um, what they've developed is a, a little tool called youarewhatyoulike.com. So, David, if you tell us a little bit about what this is, and then we'll tell you what, what it told about us. <laughs> 
Hello, sure. Um, so it, it's worth saying that. Um, so, so what we do is we take Facebook likes um, and then we put them together with people who have taken our personality and IQ tests. Um, and then we see whether we can predict people's personality just from their Facebook likes. Um, so that's what you are, what you like is dot uh, com it is. Um, anyone can go to that website, log in with Facebook. It takes their Facebook likes and then tries to predict their personality. So before we explore this a bit in depth, uh, would anyone like to, to share what it came out as? Because for me, it says that I'm, I'm liberal and artistic. Yes, I get that. Well organised. Mm. Um, <laughs> assertive and competitive. Absolutely. Emotional. I guess so. Um, but it also says I'm shy and reserved. But it said one of the likes that was most indicative of my profile was liking corsets. And I do spend a lot of my weekends prancing about in a corset. So I don't see how that makes me shy and reserved. Uh, anyone else on the team want to, want to uh, share? David, what did you get? Well, I, I was quite interested in my results because they, it does describe some aspects of my personality quite well. So I got the whole artistic angle as well. And they also managed to pick up that I'm quite introverted. So that's quite an interesting, quite subtle thing, I think, to pick up on. Um, yeah, I, I think it describes me relatively well. I'd like to have a look in exactly how they've determined this um, more interestingly. But yeah. Laurie, what did you find? Well, actually, myself and Kat, I don't think should get on at all, uh, because apparently I'm conservative and traditional (laughs) rather than liberal, which is a bit shocking. Um, And also shy and reserved, which I'm sure we We can tell. Yes, that definitely is you, Laurie, all over. I mean, I just don't believe it, David. uh, David Sitwell, because it told me I was calm and relaxed. I mean, how about that? It also said I was highly organised and artistic. I think it should have said autistic more than artistic, to be honest, if I'm quite frank. Kat? You have to be a bit organised to run a show like this but David let's find out a little bit more about um, about how this actually works because I mean that what you've got here is, is very bipolar things you know you're either this or you're this um, how, how did you kind of work out what the different categories were from from the personality test that you'd got Sure. So normally, normally with a personality test, we don't just say you're either extroverted or introverted. Um, so in our actual study, we were correlating the continuous variable of extroversion with um, our prediction from likes. Um, but it's just on you are what you like. We thought we'd, it's easier if it's simplified. Um, and then also, you know, it's a bit boring if you're near the middle. Um, so rather than saying that someone's average, we say something a bit more interesting. Um, and so generally, when you look at this kind of thing, how accurate do you find the sort of predictions of people's personality just from their Facebook likes? So for openness, for example, um, which is one of the personality traits, we're about 80% as good as a personality test, um, which is pretty amazing when you consider that no questions have been asked. Um, it's just completely based on the data that you've kind of collected on Facebook. Um, for IQ, it's about half as good as an IQ test. And we also predicted some other things such as sexuality, Um, So if you've got a male homosexual and a male heterosexual, um, then just from their Facebook likes, 88% of the time you can predict which is which. Um, We did the same thing with ethnicity, so an African-American versus a Caucasian-American. 95% of the time we can say which is which just from their likes. Uh, We've heard from Ben who says, I mean, to a certain extent, this just reflects the image that people want to portray, doesn't it? But that can apply to lots of situations. Um, I mean, in real life, you decide which clothes to wear, um, you know, when you're at work, you pretend that you're more organized than you may be at home. Um, so actually, one of the good things about Facebook is it's very hard to fake because not only is it years that you spend sort of building up these likes, but also your friends are on Facebook as well. So if you suddenly decide to like something that they know doesn't match you, then they're likely to say something about it. And you can pick that out. 
The thing that I find a little bit scary about all of this is that there's there's more and more talk about about online privacy and what companies like Facebook are doing with our data. I mean, this this we've had sort of a laugh. No, you are what you like. It's quite funny. Um, am I really shy and reserved? But how could data like this actually be used by online companies? And is there anything we can do to to protect ourselves and protect our privacy? Sure. So it's worth saying first of all that there are benefits. Um, so my ideal situation would be if I go to a website, then instead of that website showing me every advert or every sort of product that it's trying to sell, if it, if I could just tell it a little bit about me, then maybe it could just show me the three products which are actually likely to be interesting to me. And I'd prefer that because I see adverts for dating and mascara, and I have no interest in getting mascara. Um, so it's just kind of annoying and a bad user You, you do really, David. Just be honest. <laughs> <laughs> But but what about the slightly the more sinister thing? I mean, how how can people protect themselves online? Sure. So so one situation that you could imagine happening in the UK um, is if you like, for example, something that suggests that you're introverted, um, Terry Pratchett. So if an employer came to your profile, saw that it looks like you're an introverted person, then if they're looking for someone who's you know works well in teams and those kinds of buzzwords, then they may not think that you're someone who could fit in their um, organisation. So they may not invite you to interview. Um, so I recommend that people have a look at the things that they like, especially because they do build up over time and decide whether they really match what you as a person want to be associated with. Suddenly I've got a fixation all about uh, certain types of clothing and all that kind of thing. I think, oh, I've never liked it before, but now I do. Thank you very much, David. That's David Stilwell from the Psychometric Centre at the University of Cambridge. If you want to see what your likes are saying about you, you can visit youarewhatyoulike.com and you can find out. Meanwhile, thank you very much to our news panellists this week who included Michael MacArthur, David Weston and Laurie Winkless. And you can find out more information, including the references to the papers that we discussed on our website at nakedscientist.com slash news. It's planet Earth time now, and despite the ban on the international trade of its shell, numbers of the critically endangered hawksbill turtle are continuing to decline. Because these turtles spend most of their lives at sea, exact numbers aren't known, but females come to lay their eggs in the Seychelles on the island of Cuisine, and by studying the genetic material of these turtles and their hatchlings, recently published research is helping conservationists to plan for the future. And Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson went to meet Carl Phillips from the University of East Anglia to find out more about the research. Welcome to the lab. This is the business end of it, as it were. Oh, and you've got a large refrigerator here. Yep. Opened it up. And lots of colourful plastic boxes. Here's a blue one. So inside each of these plastic boxes is... 100 tubes of ethanol, each tube containing a very small piece of, of turtle tissue. If I can find the one on the box I'm looking for and show you the kind of samples that we're collecting from these animals in the field. Which part of the turtle is the sample actually from? So from the adult females, we collect the sample from the trailing edge of the front flippers. And we try to do that when the adult is laying its nest. When an adult female turtle is laying her nest, she goes into a kind of trance and she really becomes completely oblivious to her. So the procedure of collecting a tissue sample, it's going to be a bit uncomfortable for the animal, but if it's done at a time when she's in that kind of trance, it's almost like she's under an anaesthetic. She really doesn't She's too busy focusing on yeah. what she's actually her doing, yes. Are, her eggs and her nest. So the sample itself is incredibly small, isn't it? There's a sample oh from an adult goodness. female... That is just a couple of millimetres square, effectively, isn't it? And from that, I'll then take a razor blade and take a very small sliver of that 
and that will yield enough DNA to do a DNA profile of that female. The hatching ones are even smaller, and these are taken... And go the tweezers again? Oh, yes, that is <laughs> so a sort of a, almost like a one millimetre yeah, square, effectively. That's taken from above the right back leg of the hatchling when it's on its way to the sea. So the, the flesh of the shell is still soft at this time, and there's good published evidence that this kind of sampling doesn't cause any long-term harm. So female turtle has laid a nest... We pick 20 hatchlings at random, take a small flesh sample from each of them, and then the hatchlings are released to the sea. They're allowed to finish their scampering down the beach. And what have you found then from examining the DNA from these samples? What we've found is that the typical female hawksbill in our population tends to mate with just a single male. Now, within a nesting season, a female hawksbill will lay four to five clutches of about 160 or so eggs. It's about two weeks apart. Now if we look at the sequential clutches of a particular female, we find that it's the same male for each female who has fathered all of her offspring. She is mating once at the beginning of the season, storing the sperm from that single mating and then using it to fertilise all of the sequential eggs. And when you, when you think about that, that's, that's quite an impressive feat. She's laying five clutches of, of 160 eggs, so 800 eggs, all fertilised by a single mating. That's pretty special. Gosh, so with sort of gaps in between there. Yeah. So storing that sperm, yeah. and then however many, is it weeks or yeah. months later? So typically about two weeks between clutches. So after five clutches, could be five, six clutches, talking 75 days, she wow. might have stored that sperm. It's remained viable all that time. One other thing I should point out is that a very small number of our females, about 10%, had mated with a second male. What was particularly striking about this was that just as if a female had been singly mated and we see the same one father across all five of her clutches, if she were mated twice, it would be the same two males across all of her clutches. And what's more, those two males would have roughly the same proportions of paternity consistently across their nest. Can this help with the conservation of these endangered turtles? Yes, it can. Without doing this kind of study, you wouldn't know how many breeding males are contributing to your population. You might see 50 females nesting on your beach, but if they've, what if they've all been mated by the same male? We don't see that. In fact, every single female in our sample had been mated with a different individual male. That, to us, is, is highly indicative that there's a large number of males out there, and that's very good from a conservation genetics perspective. So for once, this sounds like quite good news yes. from a conservation uh, point of view. It's very good news, and coupled with the fact that on, on some of these protected islands in the Seychelles, the Hawksbill breeding population is now going up. I'd say that as things stand on, based on this, that the future looks quite promising. Carl Phillips from the University of East Anglia with good news for the endangered hawksbill sea turtle. And you can find out more information about that report via our website, nakedscientists.com slash planet earth. Now this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with me, Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find us on Facebook. This week marks the 200th anniversary of the birth of the epidemiologist John Snow, who went down in history when he tracked the source of an outbreak of cholera to a water pump in Broadwick Street, London, and requested that the pump handle be removed to stop the disease in its tracks. 
In a moment, we'll be speaking to medical historian Richard Barnett about whether we've misunderstood Snow's legacy. But first, we're joined by cholera specialist and infectious diseases physician Matt Waldor from Harvard Medical School. Hello, Matt. Hello. Tell us what actually is cholera? What's the bug and what does it do to people? Cholera is a diarrheal disease, but it's not like diarrhea that you or I have probably ever experienced in our life. It is extremely, extremely severe watery diarrhea. So what is most dramatic about cholera is the rapidity with which it can kill its victims. Cholera is caused by a a bacterium, a gram-negative bacterium, Vibrio cholerae. We usually get infected when we drink contaminated water. And a person can be entirely well and then be infected and die from choleric diarrhea within seven hours. It may be the most rapidly fatal infectious disease that we know. This organism has afflicted humans really since the beginning of recorded history. There are perfect clinical descriptions of cholera in Sanskrit texts that date back at least 3,000 years ago. And of the people who succumb to cholera, i.e. get infected, what proportion will survive it? Well, if left untreated, there's almost a 50% mortality of severe cholera. But in the early 60s, uh, mostly in in Bangladesh and in, in some parts of India, people discovered that they could use what is called rehydration therapy, which is just give people salt water with some glucose, and that can rehydrate them either orally or with intravenous solution. And then mortality rates can go to below 1%. So we'll come back to talk to Matt in a moment. But first, earlier this week, Chris spoke to medical historian and Wellcome Trust engagement fellow Richard Barnett from the Six City Project about why we're celebrating the 200th anniversary of Jon Snow's birth and what conditions were like in London back in the mid-19th century. If one wanted to pick one word to describe London in the mid-19th century, one would have to go for filthy, I think. This is an enormous city. It's a wealthy city. It's a very, very powerful city. It's the headquarters of one of the greatest empires, certainly one of the largest empires the world has ever seen. But at the same time, it's serviced by a sewage system and a system for supplying fresh water that hasn't really changed since medieval times. Most houses well into the 1820s, 1830s still have an old-fashioned cesspit in the cellar. So you put all of your excrement in a hole in the ground. Once a month, somebody comes along, digs it out, takes it off to the countryside and spreads it on the fields. From the 1820s and 1830s, water closets start to become more popular. As we all know, if you have a lavatory in your house, you need two things. Firstly, you need a pipe bringing fresh water into the house, but you also need a pipe taking all the waste out of the house. And this is the crucial problem. There's no kind of central or state-run sewage disposal system at this time. What you have is a network of short sewers that simply pour all of this waste into the Thames. And the Thames is a tidal river, so it goes back and forth twice a day, stirring all this up into the most incredibly disgusting, horrible, smelly kind of mess. But also equally, when people are 
are trying to cope with the fact there are no sewers and they've got lots of this stuff building up in the bottom of their house, then if it overflows, there's going to be unpleasantness in the house. So they're going to take steps for that not to happen. And they're presumably going to empty this stuff before that happens. And they're going to head to the street, aren't they? That's not so much a problem by the 19th century. From a modern perspective, the major problem that this this brings to light is the way in which drinking water is being drawn from exactly the same place that everybody is getting rid of their sewage. So in modern terms, there's the perfect breeding ground for a kind of feco-oral cycle of contamination. But the major concern for doctors at this time is smell. The basic idea is that any kind of rotting generates noxious vapours known as miasmas. These rise into the air, they blow around in the air, and if you breathe them in, you will end up developing a, a filth disease like cholera or typhoid. So John Snow is operating in this environment where the prevailing theory is disease comes in the form of airborne smells, malodors, miasma, and yet he connects that there is localised outbreaks of disease associated with certain environments. So he's sort of pinning things down to an environment rather than just a generalised smell. Well, the heroic myth of Jon Snow is, is generally based around this, um, this heroic moment that took place on the 8th of September, 1854. First thing that morning, a party of men approach a communal water pump on what is then Broad Street. It's now Broadwick Street in Soho, and they take the handle off the pump. Snow, through epidemiological work, through some extremely brilliant insights, has come to the conclusion that water from this pump is responsible for a terrible cholera epidemic, which has killed about 500 people in Soho over the previous week. From the 1930s, a heroic myth has been woven around this story. And there are really sort of three claims that this myth makes. Firstly, that Snow discovered the cause of cholera, which he himself in his writings was very clear that he hadn't. Secondly, that he brought the epidemic to an end by removing the handle, which again, he in his writings is very clear that he didn't. And finally, that in making this argument, he revolutionised the ways in which his contemporaries thought about infectious disease, which again, I'm afraid to say he didn't. So why did it get so celebrated, but not until maybe 100 years almost after he died? The change really comes... In 1936, when an American epidemiologist republishes Snow's 1855 pamphlet on the mode of communication of cholera, where he sets out some remarkable epidemiological evidence for this, this conclusion that cholera is transmitted by water. Now, if you look at the status of epidemiology at the time, it's a comparatively low-status profession. One of the things that this professor was trying to do was to create, if you like, a, a heroic founding father, a kind of foundational story for epidemiology, and in the process raise its 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 intellectual status but also its its social status as a profession rather a shame to be eroding that but i mean it, nonetheless it is. it's a good story in the telling isn't it well, i mean what happened when john snow's famous pump did have the handle taken off what was the outcome then well as as snow says in his pamphlet cases of cholera were, were sharply declining in the days before the pump handle was removed and they didn't stop immediately as soon as it was taken away so the removal of the pump handle was really sort of symbolic it was it was the local parish authorities showing that they'd accepted his ideas whether or not it had any practical impact 
So Snow gets the pump disabled. He has got some very interesting data. So what does he do with it? Well, the reason that epidemiologists are, are interested in celebrating Snow is because of two, as he called them, natural experiments that he carried out during the 18, uh, 1854 Soho outbreak. The first of these was a detailed, almost forensic epidemiological study of the, the outbreak in Soho, the one that was clustered around the Broad Street pump. And he finds one very striking case that's often referred to as the Hampstead Widow. A woman called Susanna Ely had lived in in the area for most of her life, but she'd retired up to Hampstead. But somehow she'd got a taste for the water from the Broad Street pump. Heaven knows what this water must have tasted like, but she was very, very keen on it. So her relatives would send barrels of this water up the hill to Hampstead. Now, she suffered cholera. She died of cholera. Nobody else in Hampstead at the time suffered from the disease, so clearly this was an isolated outbreak, and Snow was able to link it directly to the consumption of water from the Broad Street pump. He also collects a great deal of data about death rates in and around the Broad Street pump. He then maps them onto a map of Soho using a rather elegant sort of bar chart system. This is sometimes referred to as the ghost map, and this provides a a, a really striking visual demonstration of the fact that cholera cases cluster very obviously around the Broad Street pump, Now, this is a really, really striking correlation. It doesn't demonstrate causation. So Snow's second natural experiment is to study two water companies who supply water to South London. One of these companies, the Southwark and Vauxhall, gets its water from Battersea Park. That's a stretch of the river that in in the 1850s is very heavily polluted and very, very dirty. The other company, the Lambeth, has a waterworks up at Thames Ditton. The water is recognised to be much, much purer. There's much less um, sewage in it. So when Snow's finally finished his study, he discovers that people who are getting their drinking water from lower down the Thames, where it's much more polluted, are about ten times more likely to die of cholera. And that's pretty compelling, isn't it? I mean, that would stand up to scrutiny today if you sent oh, that yeah. to a journal for an epidemiological study. I mean, this is this is pretty amazing as a piece of work that someone was doing so early on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, mathematically, it's 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 very, very impressive. And again, retrospectively to our modern eyes, it's an extremely impressive piece of work, especially given that this is basically one GP working in Soho and doing all of this stuff in his spare time while he's trying professionally to deal with a, with a cholera epidemic amongst his patients. Medical historian Richard Barnett. Now, Matt Waldorf from Harvard Medical School is still with us. I guess snow must be something of a hero of yours as a specialist as you are in cholera. Yes, he certainly is. And even though the previous speaker is maybe deflating a little bit the uh, story of uh, snow's heroism, I think we shouldn't belittle the profundity of his work and his observation, which is generally regarded as founding the field of epidemiology by linking a particular vehicle, in this case contaminated water, with a disease that is so far different than the paradigm that ruled the day, as the professor said, miasma theory. But to go forward 200 years, we were inspired by Snow's work in particular by tracing how cholera got to London, and that was probably via a sailor from Hamburg. The epidemic in 1848 that killed 50,000 people in London, that was probably brought to the city 
and Snow recognized this and tried to publish it, and it was rejected by a sailor from Hamburg, which had previously experienced a big outbreak of cholera. So we asked a similar question in late October 2010. How did cholera get to the island of Hispanola, which includes the nation of Haiti? There had never been, as far as we know, cholera in Haiti ever before October 16th, 2010. So in, in Haiti, uh, to sort of link Snow's work to, to tracing a modern outbreak today, what happened in Haiti was a massive earthquake and then contamination of, of the water supply. Can you give me a, an idea of the scale of the cholera outbreak that happened there? Yes, absolutely. Um, so as far as we know, there was never cholera in Haiti until this outbreak. The earthquake happened in January of 2010. The outbreak didn't occur until October. So the cause of the outbreak um, was a great mystery, and that's what we'll talk about in a minute. But the gravity of the outbreak, which continues to this day, is enormous. To date, something on the order of 700,000 people have suffered severe cholera, which is about 7% of the Haitian population, and about more than 8,000 people have died so far. That, that's a huge, um, a huge number. So how, how are you going about trying to track the roots of this massive outbreak? What we did um, once we learned of this outbreak in, in mid-October 2010, some physician um, colleagues of mine were able to get some samples from the Haiti outbreak. And what we did, in which I view as sort of a, a modern parallel of Snow's work, was very rapidly using some very new sequencing technology determine the complete genome sequences of three isolates from different areas in Haiti from a very early part of the outbreak. And then we also sequenced strains from different parts of Asia and also from Latin America. Most of us in the field thought that most likely the outbreak was caused by some local strain from the Americas. Cholera had been absent from the Americas for about a a century before 1991 when it hit Peru and then infected more than a million people. It never got to Haiti, though. But we thought, well, there was a terrible earthquake. Maybe somehow cholera came from the sea or however and infected and got into the water supply in Haiti. But that turned out not to be the case. So what, where did you find the source? The full genome sequence of the Haiti outbreak turned out to be nearly identical to the genomes of strains from South Asia, and they were distinctly different from the strains from Latin America. So that tended to strongly argue against an origin from the Americas and suggested instead that they came from Asia. So how, how did they get there? Then? Yeah, more traditional, real s snow-like shoe leather epidemiology work done by a French epidemiologist, René Perrault, showed that the earliest part of the outbreak 
began adjacent to a UN security forces. Those security forces had come from Kathmandu, Nepal, just two weeks after there was an outbreak of cholera in Kathmandu. Although none of them were symptomatic, what transpired two weeks later was the beginning of this epidemic, and it was known that the effluent from the uh, toilets of that base actually drained ultimately into the one of the main rivers in Haiti, and that's how the epidemic spread. So I think in a way, Perot's epidemiology even trumps our modern genomics in making the case extremely strong that um, the strain actually was came to Haiti via human activity, just like Snow realized that uh, a sailor from Hamburg brought cholera to London in 1848. Thanks very much, Matt. That's Matt Waldorf from Harvard Medical School. The sequencing of the DNA from the cholera bacterium is a technique that's now being used worldwide to track the spread of the disease, including by researchers here at the Sanger Institute in Cambridge. Naked scientist Kate Lamble spoke to Anker Mutrija, who's completing his PhD at the Institute, to find out how this works. So my PhD really is all about to study the evolution of the bacteria which causes cholera and based on that to actually track the spread of this bacteria globally. How did you first get interested in cholera specifically as a disease? I come from India and although I come from North India, I've heard about cholera a lot since I was a child and I've in fact seen a cholera outbreak in my region. So when I got an opportunity to do some cholera work, it really excited me and most of the samples as they were coming from India and Bangladesh, those places being endemic, they just really hooked me up and I thought I have to do this as my PhD. So why would we want to watch how the bacteria of cholera changes over time? After doing this, we can plot the family tree, if you like, of this bacteria, and we can find out the ancestor of this bacteria, and we can precisely actually tell when those ancestors existed and where those ancestors were based. From that, you can basically track the spread of this bacteria backwards. How do you find out how the bacteria is related to a family tree? Okay, so what you basically do is you take the bacteria, you isolate the genome, which is basically the DNA, and then you sequence the DNA of that bacteria, and in those genomes you then see the differences among those DNAs, and based on those differences you can see which bacteria group together and which bacteria are separate. So and that's how you can draw the phylogenetic tree or a family tree for that bacteria, and you can track the spread. How does tracing this and seeing how it's spread help us in tackling the disease? So once you have tracked a particular spread, you know what particular type of bacteria is around these days, which is causing more severe disease, if you like. So if then you see a disease anywhere where it wasn't there or if someone has got it new, you can see if that bacteria matches that particular type of bacteria and then you'll be quicker in taking actions because you know much more about that bacteria already. So by following it, if it's moved from India to Bangladesh, we can take those lessons that we've learned from India and apply them in Bangladesh? Absolutely. So if a bacteria has spread with people, with travel, so our study showed that this bacteria can travel with people. They could be carriers or they could be export and import of food, which could result in transfer of this bacteria. So these are the lessons we've learned. You know, we can control these in future. Who's able to use that data? Essentially, everyone can use this data, including public health bodies. It's up to them how they want to use this. So if they want to use it to see when 
in fact, the antibiotic resistance actually came into this bacteria. So based on that, they can do their decisions. So you can look at how bacteria becomes antibiotically resistant. How does that help tackling it from a public health point of view? So if a bacteria has gained a particular type of antibiotic resistance, obviously that antibiotic would not treat that disease. And then when you have tracked that particular type of bacteria and you know this is the bacteria which had that type of resistance, you wouldn't be using that resistant, that antibiotic again against that bacteria. So you'll try a new antibiotic, you'll try a new therapy approach. So you can forewarn doctors about what to use and also what to stockpile, I suppose. That's right. How different is the bacteria you'd find nowadays from one you'd find 100 years ago? It is very different, I'd say. So the bacteria which caused, let's say, an outbreak in London, which was traced by John Snow, it was a classical biotype. And we are into seventh pandemic now, which is uh, from a bacteria which is called uh, L-Tor biotype. This is a particular type of bacteria which is causing this pandemic. What do you mean by a pandemic? So pandemic means a global spread. So all the strains of the seventh pandemic come from the source and we identified a single source, which is Bay of Bengal. Strains move from that particular source, enter into a non-endemic country, let's say, for example, a country in Africa. They would go there, cause an outbreak, and then disappear. And that's where we call the end of the wave. So 1961 was when the first case of this seventh pandemic-causing bacteria was reported. That is not really the beginning of the pandemic. We traced back this pandemic actually started in 1910. So you were describing the waves there and every single one seems to have come from the Bay of Bengal. Why is that area such a cauldron for cholera bacteria? So if you look at the, at the world map, Bay of Bengal has a, has a very unique position and where it actually exists, it has the right temperature for the bacteria to grow and population there is going to the Bay of Bengal, collecting water to drink, and all the sewage systems at times are actually draining into Bay of Bengal as well. So it kind of gives a very good habitat, let's say, for the bacteria to grow and to multiply. So it's a good habitat for the bacteria, and then the the human conditions around it are good for transport to other areas. Absolutely. Uh, Human conditions are helper conditions to actually help bacteria travel to different places. If there's been seven pandemics and each time it's receded, and you you mentioned it just goes in waves, does that imply that cholera is quite tackleable as a disease? So it is, it can be tackled, but you have to have very precise idea about what exactly was happening in that wave, what sort of public health action was taken in a particular country to tackle that, and from there you learn lessons. Is that shown in the waves within the seventh pandemic? Have we got better at reacting to each wave? We have got better, but at the same time, bacteria has become better as well at causing disease. So, you know, bacteria keeps evolving, it keeps changing. So each time it gets better, we need to get even better. That was Ankur Matreja from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. And uh, Matt Wardor from Harvard with us today. Your final thought on cholera and its present situation in the world, Matt? Going back to John Snow, even though Snow founded epidemiology and let us understand the spread of cholera in the past eight years or so, the WHO has found that cholera is increasing around the world. So great challenges still remain um, on the road that snow started us on. Matt, thank you very much. Matt Wardor from Harvard Medical School. Kat. And finally, to close our show, Hannah Critchlow sinks her teeth into the question of the week. This week, we wander the polished premolars of other species. Hi, my name's Quezzy and I'm from London. 
My question is, are we the only species which practices dental care? I don't imagine other species brush their teeth, though I'm bracing myself to be proven wrong. Yet in the many documentaries I watch, the animals, particularly felines and canines, seem to have perfectly clean gnashes. Are we humans missing a trick, or is it our complex diet that necessitates stripy toothpaste? Thanks very much. Love the show. So, with the exception of some species that have built up special relationships with other animals to help clean their teeth for them, humans are virtually the only ones that practice personal dental hygiene. Now, why is that? With the answer... Hi, my name's uh, David Williams and I work at Cambridge Vet School. Wild animals don't, by and large, get tooth decay and they don't need to brush their teeth at all. And you might ask, why on earth don't they get tooth decay? Well... You might think it's because their food's less mushy than the sort of stuff we give to domesticated dogs and cats. They do get a lot of tooth problems. After all, pet owners give their cats and dogs dentist sticks and other similar hard items to chew on to try and reduce the tartar and, and the tooth decay. But look at wild otters. They eat soft fish and slippery eels. They're hardly going to crack off tartar, are they? But they don't get any dental hygiene problems at all. So if the hard texture of the food isn't a thing preventing tooth decay, what is? The difference is probably related to the amount of carbohydrate in the diet, pets' diets, wild animals' diets, and our diets as well. Carbohydrates, that's say sugars and starches, provide a ready food source for bacteria in the mouth. They have weird names like protobacteria and firmicutes and fusobacteria. If there's sugar in the mouth, then they can grow more and more and give dental decay. Of course, all this fits with what dentists tell us about our teeth, doesn't it? Sugary drinks and sweets increase our risk of dental decay. So maybe we should be like the wild animals and try and cut down on our sugar and carbohydrate intake. Thanks, David, for that. And crocodiles, already heavy protein eaters, are an example of taking their giant Nasher hygiene one step further, snapping up a loving relationship with the Egyptian crocodile bird. After eating their full, a crocodile will go off for a little snooze, relax open its jaw and allow the plover bird to act as its personal dental hygienist, vacuuming up the scraps that are left in crocodile snappers. Everyone's a winner, the plover bird well-fed, and the croc keeps its winning smile. Well, with that question polished up, we'll stick with the subject of successful partnerships, but this time with a rather doomsday scenario. Hi, my name is Martin Harris and I live in Cheltenham. My question is, we rely increasingly on computer networks. If a solar storm or malicious virus hits the network... Could our current civilization's dependency on computer networks be damaged irreversibly? So would it spell the end of the world as we know it if all of the computers crashed? Or could it lead to worldwide liberation? Send us your thoughts. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page. You can email chris at thenakedscientists.com or you can join in the live debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. 
Hannah Critchlow. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Michael MacArthur, David Stilwell, Richard Barnett and Matthew Waldor. Thank you also to Kat Arney for joining me and the production this week was by Kate Lamble and Ben Vowsler. Next time, we're going to be rummaging through our old CDs and floppy disks because we're pondering the future of data storage. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you for listening. Goodbye.